Uh, my name's Brad. If we haven't had an opportunity to meet yet, I'm part of the teaching and leadership team here at Jericho. And uh, just a, a note for you, we do have uh, Aaron, who's one of our, part of our elders team, and has uh, done the uh, catering for us for our uh, meal for the membership luncheon, has let me know he grew up in a family of boys, and so there's food enough for everyone. So if you were thinking and you were on the fence and you wanted to join us, just zip over to the Welcome Center, put your name down, and you'd be more than welcome to join us for lunch uh, if you're interested in pursuing baptism or membership here at Jericho Ridge. We have the uh, Marpole Picnic Shelter booked for Sunday, uh, June the 10th for baptism. So if you've been kind of toying around with that in your mind for a while and you'd like more information, then come on downstairs to the rec center afterwards. We'll feed you and we'll get to know you a little bit more. Uh, well, we are uh, today finishing off the book of Acts. So we started it in 2009, and then we took a several-year hiatus uh, from it. But then as we've gone in the months of January and February, we've done eight weeks through the second half of the book of Acts, and today we've arrived at Acts chapter 28. Now, some of you will nitpick and say, but Brad, it's not really fair from Acts chapter 22 to Acts chapter 28, where we're at this week. And you may be partially right. So let me give you like the abbreviated kind of Coles Notes version on what happens uh, in chapters 23 to 27. So last week we left Paul, and you remember he was in trouble. He spoke to an angry crowd on the steps of the temple. No surprise here, he got arrested. So go to jail, go directly to jail, do not pass go, do not collect 200. Uh, he appears before the Jewish high council, and that doesn't go too well because he decides he's going to pit two groups against each other, and so they get in trouble, and he goes back to jail. Then he narrowly escapes a plot on his life. Again, this is not surprising to us because this has happened a lot of times through the book of Acts. But there's 40 dudes who decided that instead of, like, say, giving up coffee or chocolate for Lent, what they were going to give up for Lent was letting Paul live. And so they made a pact that until he died, they were not going to eat or drink or do anything else. So Paul's nephew actually hears about this, gets the news to him, and the Roman uh, uh, garrison commander decides that it's so dangerous for Paul in the city of Jerusalem. And this has caused such an uproar that he needs to send him up the line a little bit. So he goes to the regional court up in Caesarea. So Paul gives his defense of the regional court to the governor whose name is Felix. Felix wants a bribe to let Paul go, and Paul decides he's not going to give him a bribe. And so Felix kind of throws Paul under the bus. Felix retires or gets moved to some other position and leaves Paul in jail, even though he's convinced of his innocence. So then the next dude comes in, and his name is Festus. And Paul does what we've seen him do again and again. And again, he shares his story. And so he tells it to King Agrippa and his wife Bernice. And Paul uh, talks about his story and gives the exact same story. That's why we're kind of skipping ahead. Because Paul's story, as he tells in Acts 24, Acts 25, Acts 26, it's all a repeat of what he does in chapter 22. And so uh, Paul's emphasis has always been on sharing his story. And that's why our series title is Now is the Time. And he's been convinced that one thing he wants to do and has become increasingly passionate about is telling God's story and his story and how those all work uh, together. So he skipped, we're going to the repetitions of that. 
Paul presents his case, and uh, they're pretty sure he's innocent, but they're not quite sure what to do with him. So at this point, Paul says, you know what? I'm going to appeal to the highest court that I can. I'm going to appeal to the supreme court of his day, which is the emperor himself, Caesar. And so they send him on his way. And in chapter 27, Paul sails for Rome, and there's a massive storm that destroys the ship that he's on, but God in his grace saves everyone on this little island of Malta that he sails with. And after wintering there, they set sail, and finally, Paul comes to Rome. And when he arrives, he does what he's had this, and that is he's sharing God's story and his story with everyone. So we're going to read the text, and as I read, I want you to ask yourself this question. How do you think that Paul's methodology and his message here in Acts chapter 28 are different from the usual North American strategy that we have around evangelism, presentations and strategies? All right? I should at least let John get back to the booth with his front microphone. I was going to try something again. So, so uh, Acts chapter 28, uh, reading in verse 6. Then Barnabas and Silas went with Paul and Barnabas to Antioch. And when they had come, they set down with them and prayed. He called up, I'm just going to keep going. Called up uh, the local Jewish leaders and he said to them, Brothers, I was arrested in Jerusalem. He's very respectful when he talks to them. Handed over to the Roman government, even though I had done nothing against our people or the customs of our ancestors. The Romans tried me, and they wanted to release me because they found no cause for the death sentence. But when the Jewish leaders protested their decision, I felt it necessary to appeal to Caesar, even though I had no desire to press charges against my own people. And so I asked you to come here today so we could get acquainted and so I could explain to you that I am bound with this chain. He's chained up to a Roman guard uh, in the place that he lives. I'm bound to this chain because I believe in the hope of Israel that the Messiah has already come. And they replied, well, we've had no letters uh, from Judea or reports against you from anyone who has come here. But we want to hear what it is that you believe. For the only thing we know about this movement, the way, the only thing they know about the early Christian movement, is that it is denounced everywhere. So they don't they have a little bit of a, a challenge with it. So verse 23, a time was set, and on that day a large number of people came to Paul's lodging. And he explained and testified about the kingdom of God. He tried to persuade them about Jesus from the scriptures, using the law of Moses 
and the books of the prophets, he spoke to them from morning until evening. Some were persuaded by the things that he said, but some did not believe. And after they'd argued back and forth amongst themselves, they left with this final word from Paul. The Holy Spirit was right when he said to your ancestors through the prophet Isaiah, go and say to this people, when you hear what I say, you will not understand. When you see what I do, you will not comprehend. For the hearts of these people are hardened and their ears cannot hear. They have closed their eyes so their eyes cannot see. Their ears cannot hear, their hearts cannot understand, and they cannot turn to me and let me heal them. So I want you to know, Paul says, that this salvation from God has been offered to the Gentiles, and they will receive it, or they will accept it. Verse 30, for the next two years, Paul lived in Rome at his own expense. How do you like that? You get thrown in jail and you have to pay for it? He welcomed all who visited with him, boldly proclaiming the kingdom of God and teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ, and no one tried to stop him. So let me remind you where we started this series at the beginning of January. Beginning of January, we highlighted for you a couple of elements that we were going to emphasize over the course of our time together. We said a couple of things. We're going to learn together in Acts the joys and challenges of cross-cultural mission, and we have certainly seen that in Paul's life, and the same is true in our own lives and experiences. We're going to talk about the urgency of mission, and you look right till the end, Paul has a sense of urgency in his life, in his heart, about what it is that God has asked for him to do. We're going to focus on a declaration of the kingdom of heaven, not solely on decisions, and then talk about how to share your story as well. And here in Acts chapter 28, one of the interesting things about this to me is that all of these themes are packed into one short text. Paul does all of these things and models them for us very effectively in Acts chapter 28. Paul focuses, like we've talked for the last few weeks, on three stories. He focuses on God's story, and we might use a shorthand phrase like the gospel to describe that. He focuses on the story of his listeners and un helps them understand how their own history as a people has prepared them for what he's talking about. And then he talks about his own story a little bit, uh, three-story evangelism. And the thing I love about this text in Acts 28 is it lays out some fairly clear and explicit ground rules or some helpful basics around how to have these types of conversations with people, which I think when we talk about things like use a word like evangelism, it has a lot of baggage. It's laden with and we kind of think, oh, that's kind of scary type stuff. Maybe you have some negative personal experiences with it uh, on either end, either being evangelized in a way which felt like coercive or high pressure, or maybe you've had experiences where you've been trained in that type of stuff. Uh, and so here, when we break it down in Acts chapter 28, what Paul is doing here and throughout the book of Acts is he's finding creative ways to tell these three stories. Finding ways to talk about God's story, about his story, and about the story of his listeners in ways that knit them all together and helpfully unpackage what it is that God uh, might want to do in those settings and situations. And so if you are here today and you're a follower of God in the way of Jesus, you've been empowered and called by the Spirit 
to have these types of conversations with people in your spheres of influence. So we're going to look at what we can learn about some of uh, uh, evangelism basics from Paul in this text. All right. So you may have some thoughts about this already, and you may have uh, taken written down, you want to write down some notes on page 38 in your Momentum Journal. If not, there's a place for doodling and making your grocery list on page 39 of your Momentum Journal. So it's your choice. Uh, but the first thing that Paul does in this particular text and comes up right away on his arrival in the city of Rome. He's there in a new city, and he makes contact like he always does with the Jewish leaders in that city. Now, we've seen him go to the synagogues. Here he doesn't have the freedom and permission to do that because he's a prisoner, so he's chained to a Roman guard on four-hour shifts, and they just cycle out, and he gets to stay in a house, but he can't leave but they've given him permission to have people into his home. So he has to call them, takes a couple days. In verse 20, basically Paul says, hey, I would like to get acquainted with you. And so it's not really rocket science. Evangelism basic, number one, uh, is, is fundamental to whatever else follows in our conversation. And that is just show respect when you're engaged in conversations with people about your faith. Um, get to know them a little bit before you decide that that might be a great opportunity to preach at them. Paul shares his story, and he takes care in the way that he tells his story not to villainize the Jewish leadership, which would be very easy for him to do in Jerusalem. Uh, They got him into this mess in the first place, and he asks for permission for these people, these Jewish leaders in Rome. May I have a conversation with you about my faith in Jesus. And he's upfront about the nature of the conversation with them. He's not interested in a kind of a bait and switch approach. He says to them, listen, I have come to the place in my life where I believe that the hope of Israel, Jesus as Messiah, has come already. So let's talk about that a little bit. And so he's interested in a real conversation that demonstrates a respect and a care for his listener. But as we go through each of these kind of basics, we're going to see that what often happens is that there's a problem or a trap that we've kind of fallen into as, I'm going to say, evangelicals over the last number of years. And the problem in this first one is that most Christians have not actually done the hard work of earning the right to be heard in someone's life. They demonstrate no care for the story or the situation of the person that they're in conversation with. And as a result, they violate 1 Peter 3, verses 15 and 16, which says, If someone asks you about your Christian hope, always be ready to do this, but do this in a gentle and respectful way. That doesn't mean that when God prompts you to share about his story or your story with a person that you have never met, you should shy away from it and say, oh, well, I haven't earned the right to be heard in this situation, God. But it does mean a few things. I'll highlight just one of them for you. I worked in the hospitality industry for six years. I was a server uh, for part of those years at uh, the keg restaurant back east in the suburban Toronto. And our restaurant made a couple of decisions. One, uh, which all of the servers rejoiced at, was the decision not to be open for lunch on Sunday afternoons. 
Because of the horrible, horrible, horrible reputation that churchy people had when they would come into our restaurant after having been in a religious service that morning and then come in and they would be very demanding. Nobody wanted to work Sundays. They would leave horrible tips. And quite often, the people that left the worst tips would also leave a little tract with it in there. Not cool. Not cool. I never want to hear about people from Jericho Ridge going to a restaurant, being cheap, and then leaving a tract, all right? I never want that to come back to to Keith or myself, that we would hear about this happening. One of our values is generosity here. You lose the right to be heard when you are stingy and cheap, amongst other things, all right? So we could park it here for a while, but I won't. I will simply say, investing in relationships where the person actually wants to ask you about the hope that you have in Jesus means that you are going to spend some time there. You're going to do some relational uh, work and help them understand you, and you're going to get to know them a little bit more. Because First Peter 3 says they need to ask about your Christian hope. So you need to live in such a way that they would ask about your Christian hope. And when you have that conversation then your life has lived in a way that's congruent with that, and then you can demonstrate and show respect in a gentle and respectful conversation with the person that you're in conversation with, all right? So basic number one, show respect. Uh, This is related. Okay, any questions about that? Does that make sense? I'm sure you have lots of examples of where this has not transpired in your life or in your observations. And so you might want to just make a little mental note of that and jot down what what things would I want to maybe uh, step away from or steer clear of in those environments. All right, on to basic number two. Basic number one, show respect. Evangelism basic number two is speak up. We've fallen into some bad habits in North America about a feeling that if I just live as a person that would prompt someone to ask questions, if they never ask any questions, then that's their own business. They just don't know enough, and we can't have that conversation. So verses 23 to 31, there are actually six separate words used to describe Paul's telling of the story. Paul explains, he testifies, he persuades, he speaks, he proclaims, and he teaches. And so the idea is that Paul is in active dialogue, not a monologue with these people, but he is actively speaking with them about his faith and confidence in Jesus. So the notion of proclamation, as an example, has at its root this dynamic where Paul is appealing to their will and calling out a decision in their life. And the idea of teaching is that Paul's going over things in a very reasonable and thorough case uh, and presenting it to someone, almost like a legal argument that would lead a person to say, you know what, I'm appealing to their mind that this idea of faith is very reasonable and that there's some historicity and some historical evidence here for Jesus as Messiah. And this is where some of us, I think, uh, get trapped, myself included in this. And if we're going to blame somebody, I'm going to blame St. Francis of Assisi because he's been dead for hundreds and hundreds of years. So uh, St. Francis of Assisi, perhaps you've heard his famous injunction, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words 
might be familiar with this. All right, I get what he's trying to say. I think it's a load of rubbish. He's trying to say, I think, that our lives and our actions ought to embody and advance the gospel, that we ought to be on the front lines of working for justice and for peace, that we ought to take holiness so seriously and rid our lives of lying and sexual sins, that our lives would reflect God's radiant glory and the goodness of God who saved us. I get all of that, but hear me out on this one. The problem then that happens is that the gospel actually requires a declaration, not just deeds. If all of my neighbors, if all of my neighbors around me, if the only thing that they know about me is that somehow I'm a nice person, that doesn't help them. It doesn't make it hard for people on my street to go to hell. It, there's lots of nice people out there in the world. Yes, the gospel must be embodied and lived out, but it also must be proclaimed and talked about and testified to and taught. We must speak to people and do the work of persuading them. This is worldview reshaping work to which we have been called. And it requires that we not stay silent, but that we actively speak up in these relationships that God puts us into. So, yes, preach the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. But you do need to use words to actually articulate what it is that the gospel means. But that being said, the, that speaking up doesn't mean that the only goal is to get into a conversation with somebody so I can push them to the place where they are going to make a decision. Because that's not what Paul does here. It tends to be what we've done as evangelicals for the last 50 years, and we've resorted to some very effective and high-pressure-type tactics to do that sometimes. But Paul understands that the third ba basic in the conversation with faith about people is that you need to just be ready and prepared for a wide variety of responses, an incredibly wide variety of responses, in fact. Look at his dialogue uh, with the Jews in chapter 28. There's at least three responses that we see to Paul's story and God's story. In verse 24, it says, praise God, some of them were persuaded. In verse 24, he's used only the Old Testament and a full day, sun up to sundown, worth of dialogue. And Paul is able to lead someone uh, to saving faith. So some of them were persuaded. The other response that came in verse 25 is that some of them argued. And I love this. It says they argued amongst themselves. So they weren't necessarily even arguing with Paul. It's just like Paul got the conversation going, and there was a little fight that broke out saying, I don't know if this guy's right or not. I think he's right. I think he's right. And they went back and forth and back and forth. They started to have this conversation amongst themselves. But verse 24 also says that there were those who did not believe and had hardened hearts. Their hearts were not at a place where there was a receptivity and response. And so verse 24 says they did not believe. And in verses 26 and 27, Paul quotes from the Old Testament, from the prophet Isaiah, chapter 6, verses 9 and 10. And this quotation is one that God gave to Isaiah at the beginning of Isaiah's own prophetic ministry to basically set him up to steal himself against a lifetime 
of rejection and disappointment. Because God warns Isaiah at the beginning of his ministry, you know what, Isaiah? You're going you're gonna to have all of these conversations, and you just need to be ready that you should not expect a favorable response from your own people. Jesus himself also experienced this. In Matthew chapter 13, Mark chapter 4, verse 12, Luke chapter 8, verse 12, and in John it says, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. And Paul says this to them because of a self-inflicted condition in their own hearts. Hardness of heart. Now think about where have we seen that phrase in the Old Testament that there'd be some level of familiarity with what he's talking about here. Can you think of an example? Pharaoh. Pharaoh's hardness of heart. And Paul pulls this concept through and says, listen, hardness of heart, there's no, uh, there's no ability for a seed to take root and grow in there. Think about, I grew up in a farming community. There were, there were places and there were seasons where the soil was so hard that no matter what you did, there was an inability to get that seed in there to take root and grow. That crusty, dry, uh, just clay-like, rocky soil. No matter how hard your desire is for that seed to take root and grow, no matter how much you fertilize that piece of ground, no matter how many shovels you break on it, that ground is hard as a rock, and it's not going to receive the seed that's in there. No matter whatever you say, you can present the most logical and reasoned argument, the most philosophically airtight presentation of who Jesus was, they're going to not hear it. Whatever you say, they won't understand. Whatever they see, you can say, well, point to all of these, these amazing things that God has done in my own life. Can you see the way that God's been working in amazing ways in your own life? They're not going to comprehend it. And it's not that they can't understand what they hear. It's that they have chosen to willfully, in verse 27, shut their own eyes to it. So that God can't do the work in their life and in their heart that he so deeply desires to do, a work of healing and salvation. And part of what I think Paul is trying to communicate here to us is that God is not a bully He's all-powerful, but he chooses not to force his way into your life if you choose not to want him there. And the implications of this are powerfully challenging. And I'm indebted here in my thinking to um, one of the commentaries InterVarsity put out on the book of Acts. And they talk about, you see a person with a hard heart, they've actually perceived... Saving truth without choosing to appropriate it in any way. There's not something defective in the message. There's something that is willfully that the audience is choosing to listen to, but not to hear and not respond. To receive it, but to reject it at the same time. So Paul quotes Isaiah to challenge his listeners and to remind them that throughout history, there are those who have hardened their heart to what it is that God desires to do 
And Paul's making the case here and saying, there are clusters of your ancestors who chose to harden their hearts, and that parallels the active resistance of the Jews currently to the rejection of the gospel of Jesus, Paul's day. Because all throughout the world and all throughout history, God has not left himself without a witness in our lives and in our world. But outward perception, unless that's matched by inward spiritual insight and response, hearing and seeing are in vain. So Paul says, listen, it's not the mission that I'm contrasting here. It's not like, get rid of you people. You haven't been responsive. Now I'm going on to a new breed of people who might listen a little bit what's going on here. He's saying, you know what? I continue to have this huge, huge heart for my own people. Just read Romans 9, 10, and 11. But Paul says, you know what? If you're going to remain firm and entrenched in your own hardness of heart, then God uh, is running a parallel uh, invitation to those who are non-Jews to come and participate in his family. And they're going to be responsive to it in the world. And so Paul has readied himself, and we also need to ready ourselves, for a wide variety of responses when we get into conversations about faith and the gospel. But the problem comes in when we take a measuring stick to this, and the problem has historically been that technique-based evangelism focuses so much on making a decision getting somebody to pray the prayer, that anything less than that is considered a failure or doesn't count. So you ask questions like, well, how many people prayed the prayer or put up their hand at camp last summer? Which is a focus on decisions as opposed to asking the questions, how many people have moved from a place of hardness in their heart to a place of hearing, understanding, and living out the gospel? It's a discipleship-oriented question as opposed to a decision-oriented question. And what can sometimes happen is if the only goalpost that we have is did the person pray the prayer, then I don't know about you, but I can go for a long time in conversations with people where they don't pray the prayer. And so it gets, can get a little bit discouraging, and you think, my goodness, is God doing anything in their life and in their heart? You know, you feel like, I haven't led anyone to Christ yet this year. This is ridiculous. But friends, some of you are working in places where the soil is incredibly, incredibly hard. Some of you, God has placed you in family environments and systems where past actions of Christians or otherwise or circumstances have created a significant barrier to someone having a soft heart and a receptive heart. And so it's going to take you a long time and a lot of prayer and a lot of conversations of bringing down some of those barriers in a place uh, where God will, will bring saving faith to those people in his time, Lord willing. Maybe your workplace, you feel, is crass or is just a really difficult place. Maybe in, in your work environment, it's uh, populated with people of uh, different worldviews and different religious perspectives. And so to think that you're going to have one conversation with somebody and that they're going to come to saving face and you think, boy, you know, it's just not happening. I'm getting a little bit discouraged. Some of these places, the ground is very, very hard and you might not actually live in your lifetime to see a person cross the line 
of faith. But your work in that place and your life and your witness and your testimony might move a person from a super, super hard, rocky heart to a place where it's just a little less rocky. And that is significant work. It's a huge step. And we should celebrate it. But if we get so focused on making decisions, then we don't celebrate some of those what seem like minor steps but can be absolutely astronomical works of perseverance and of the Spirit doing amazing things in people's lives. So the problem with nose counting is you only focus on those who prayed the prayer and as opposed to those who are work on being and making disciples and those who are far from God. So Paul instructs Timothy and says, you know, Timothy, you got to do the work of an evangelist, but in terms of the results, pray hard, work hard at being respectful, speaking up, don't get discouraged. And if people aren't falling on their knees in repentance, maybe God has appointed your work in that place and in their lives to be moving them from closed ears and open ears closed ears to open ears, so that someone later on in their life or someone else entirely explains the message of the gospel to them and they hear and respond. Maybe your work is moving them from a very hard heart to a slightly less hard heart so seeds can be planted. From blinded eyes maybe to just acknowledging the fact that maybe God exists and is active in their world. And this is significant work. And I wonder if we would do well to find better ways of celebrating that. I don't know. Maybe there's another way that we could count things so that took the focus off of and the pressure off of evangelism as a crushed or pressurized environment towards decision-making. If you've got any ideas, I'd love to hear them. Maybe we count conversations as opposed to just conversions, but certainly we want to focus on disciple-making as opposed to simply decision-making. So that's number three, be ready for a wide variety of responses. And this brings us to our last evangelism basic. We hinted at this previously. Uh, Number four is be clear on your message. Be clear on your message. Part of the challenge is this. If I lined 100 people up and I asked them what is seemingly a simple question, what is the gospel, I would get 100 different responses because everyone would go about articulating it in a different way. Now, there are some ways of articulating the message that are maybe not as helpful as other ways. So I'm going to quote a few. These are people who are well-known authors, and I would like you to try and guess who it is. All right? What is the gospel? The gospel is the good news that God wants to show you his incredible favor. He wants to pour new wine into your life as you get rid of your old wineskins, which is a negative way of thinking. Who said it? Take a guess. Well, I think I heard it. Joel Osteen. That's true. Yeah. He, so, I mean, you get what he's getting at, but I think that's not the sum total of the gospel, that God wants to get rid of your negative way of thinking. That's not what we're calling people to. That's not what Paul did. That's not what uh, the apostles did, and it's not what Jesus did. So next one. What is the gospel? The gospel is that God's face will always be turned towards you, that he loves you and is forever turned in your direction. Who said that? 
Well, that's a good guess. Could be. Could be. It's another Joel Osteen one. I put two out back to back, just so you know. So you get a little of my bias there. It's an, maybe an unfair question for you to ask. That, I mean, that's gospel, but it's not the whole part of the gospel. And the problem is that if you invite someone to saving faith based on a weak or anemic gospel, if you say, well, God has always turned towards you, you know, the soon as someone goes into a life experience where they feel like God is not turned towards them, suddenly their faith begins to crumble because it's been built on a very shallow expression and partial gospel of what Jesus can do for them. Because as soon as Jesus hasn't done anything for me lately, and as soon as I feel that God's face isn't turned towards me because of the challenges in my life, my faith just shrivels up and dies. But in these short verses, Paul actually does a great job, a robust and holistic job of presenting what might be called the gospel according to Paul. And the first thing, there's lots that could be said about this. I'll say a few short things. The first thing that Paul says is in verse 20 and verse 23, Jesus is the Messiah. This is the gospel according to Paul. He starts because this is where his listeners are at. This is the question that they're wrestling with. How in the world could you say that someone has fulfilled all of the prophetic words of the Old Testament? That this guy named Jesus is the hope and fulfillment of the longings and prophecies of the Old Testament? I mean, we've been reading this last week through our momentum journaling in Exodus and Leviticus. And yeah, it can get a tad bit tedious in terms of the high detail and, and sacrificial system. Um, but Paul's roots in and Jesus' story, Paul roots the telling of the story of Jesus and our story in the Old Testament, in, this, in the story of the people of Israel. He says God's not only a creator, but God also is one who makes a covenant with his people. He's busy throughout the Old Testament building and drawing people into community. And Israel is a model to bless the nations, but they mess it up. And so just like uh, you and I mess it up, God needed to send the perfect Israelite who was Jesus, a second Adam in Romans language to set things right. And so Paul's gospel validates the totality of God's story throughout history, culminating in the work and the declaration that Jesus is Messiah. And secondly, that the kingdom of God is here. Now, I'm not going to bore you with the details of a little theological tiff that's going on in North America right now. But there are kind of two groups of people that are coalescing around different authors and thinking. One are kind of like kingdom people, and the other are more like cross people. And so kingdom of God uh, people, uh, they, they're pushing back, I think, against sort of this narrow definition of the gospel of just saying, well, the gospel is about uh, just strictly justification through faith, and Martin Luther's phrase in the Reformation. And so they push back against it and say, you know what, we got to think a little bit more holistically about this. Uh, we need to talk about the kingdom of God more extensively. So we want to talk about uh, God working here and now, us partnering with seeing God's rule and reign come to the earth. We need to talk about things like caring for the world and talk about things like justice and working for peace and caring for the poor and the oppressed. And this would be the case uh, in certain streams of the church that this would actually be all that you hear about. And certain streams of Anabaptism, actually, that's all you'd hear about. And of course, these things are wonderfully true and absolutely necessary. But if we only talked about those things, we might not be 
doing justice to the totality and faithfulness of a holistic gospel, not as Paul presents it. So he says it twice, just so we don't miss it. In verse 23, and then again at the end, he talks about it and says, I'm talking about that the kingdom of God is here and that Jesus is Savior and Lord. Paul will always knit these two things together in his thinking so that we don't get it truncated in any way. Because there are streams of the contemporary church who would be hyper-focused on the cross, sometimes at the expense of the life and the death and the burial and resurrection and glorification of Jesus. And the danger with focusing only on the cross is that that just makes my salvation about me getting right with Jesus, getting my sins wiped away so I can go to heaven as an individual. And then in this case, the gospel can become also very truncated and narrow and individualistic. And so Paul is careful to say, you know what? The kingdom is here. Jesus is Savior and Lord, and he's the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. So if you're going to talk about gospel, we've got to read a little more broadly and think a little bit more broadly, that we live out and declare a gospel that expresses the vital necessity and power, both of coming to Jesus in the cross, but also living for Jesus and with Jesus in our lives. And the problem is, I think, in the contemporary church that aside from just jumping into one of those things and hankering down there a little bit to um, emphasizing one only of those things is that we're not necessarily familiar enough with the gospel ourselves to do a good job of declaring it and being faithful and sharing it with other people. But fear not. Over the next six weeks, we're going to do a preaching series and we're going to ask the question, what is the gospel? And so we're going to equip and expand and tease out a little bit what we mean when we say what is the gospel and talk about the depth and richness of God's story in creation, redemption, and restoration. So you're going to have to stay tuned for that as we go uh, into Easter. But as we finish out our time together this morning, I want to take you back to how Luke actually starts uh, and finishes his two-part book of Luke and Acts. If you look at the end of chapter 28, it seems to almost end a little bit abruptly in some ways, doesn't it? He's chained to a Roman soldier. He spends the last two years that we have on record of his life practicing hospitality, engaging in discussion and declaration of all who visit him. It's likely during this time that Paul wrote uh, some of the books of the New Testament that we have, uh, like Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And then Acts 29, 28 finishes. And tradition has it that Paul was released after these two years and that he continued on his journeys only to return again to Rome and be martyred by the Emperor Nero sometime between A.D. 64 and 67. But at the end of the book, as Paul is still remaining in chains, Luke wants us to be 100% clear that the message of the gospel is unchained and is advancing with power. And his books of Luke and Acts have been to demonstrate and teach us that the early Christian movement is rooted in Christ's life and his death and his resurrection. And as that message continues to expand out from Jerusalem to Rome, from its Jewish enclave to the very heart of the Roman Empire, from Jesus' birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, to the powerful and transcultural and universal message of his saving work and the implications of that event, Luke is saying to us at the end of his book, nothing is going to stop this. 
Nothing can oppose it. And so, friends, that's why we titled the series, Now is the Time. Because now is the time for you and I, friends, to write the next chapter. To be so gripped with the message of the kingdom of God and the person of Jesus that we can't help but declare it in the power and in authority of the Spirit. To continue on the work and the message and the mission that Paul began and that the New Testament gives witness to. Let's pray together. God, we are grateful for your work in our lives. We are thankful for the message of the gospel. We would be privileged and pleased, God, to continue to be faithful to declare and proclaim it in our day. We would ask that you would give us the same level of clarity and authority and power that Paul felt and that you equipped him with by your spirit. That we would be about the task of being on mission with you and talking to people about our faith, not just living it out, but talking about it in respectful and honest ways under the authority and gifting of your spirit in the time and with the tools that you have given to us, God. We need your help in that. We want to knit together in our thinking the kingdom of God and the story and the work and message of Jesus so that we don't leave anything out as we declare it, Father, here in our neighborhoods, in our families, in our places of work, and all around the world where you've called us to be active. And so, Jesus, I would invite you to continue to give us boldness that we would feel and sense that now is the time for us to declare the message that you've given to us all throughout the course of our week. Gift us with your strength and resources. We pray. Amen. Amen. Team's going to lead us in a song of response. I'm going to ask the ushers if they would come and we'll prepare to receive the offering uh, this morning. I'm going to invite you to stand with me because this is a song of declaration that God's kingdom and his authority has come and that we are participants in it. It might be new to you, and so I'd invite you to, uh, we'll, as we receive the offering, to uh, let the team sing the first few verses for you and then sing in and join in as you're ready and prepared.